So today we are continuing on in our series looking at what love is. Over the last couple of weeks we've looked at what love looks like, how love is patient, and this week my task is to look at how love is kind. Uh, And to begin with we're going to look back at the same passage that we looked at last week, that's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. I'm going to read it, but it's going to come up on the on the screen. It says this, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. A greater description of love, I don't think you will find anywhere. In fact, this is one of the most iconic Bible verses. Uh, You'll often hear it at weddings. I've heard it at many weddings, and those are events that one would hope are oozing love. It tells you exactly what love is, and we've explored that a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Uh, But today, picking out a particular area, as I said before, we're going to be looking at how love is kind. Here's a question to start. How kind do you think you are? Perhaps that uh, conjures up some thoughts and memories for you of times that you have been kind, maybe some pleasant uh, memories. Maybe uh, it might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. As a church, are we known for our love and our kindness more than we are known for our beliefs and our behavior? Are we known for love and support, the kindness and care that we offer to those around us in our community, or are we better known for our beliefs and our behaviour? Have there been times perhaps when our belief and our behaviours have maybe stopped us from being as kind as we possibly could have been? Because if that is the case, then I think we need to evaluate what our beliefs and our behaviours are. Are they actually in line with what Jesus thought uh, and and what Jesus taught? Do those beliefs and behaviours move us to act out of kindness or do they prompt us to show love or do they present us in a not so good fashion? Jesus came to earth and uh, he was the absolute perfect example of kindness. You can read all about it. He was the absolute perfect example of kindness. Now that does not mean that Jesus was always somebody who said yes to things. He was not a yes man. He didn't always give people what they wanted. What perhaps they thought that would have been the kind thing for them to have had, to receive. What they maybe thought would have been the kind thing for Jesus to have done. Sometimes he did something else altogether because it was what they needed. 
And when we look closely at Jesus' behaviours and the way that he exhibited kindness and love to those who crossed his path, we discover how it is that Jesus asks us to live our lives, how he wants us to act and react around others. I got married in 2019 and we arranged to have some wine on all the tables uh, at our wedding reception. And uh, as you do, sort of, because it's like staggered, isn't it, the, the serving when you've got big parties, uh, uh, we sort of floated around a little bit because we had time to float around. In fact, I was told I floated around far too much and didn't spend enough time eating. Um, but you sort of float around and I, we were doing that. Um, and uh, myself and Heather, we had paid for the event up front. And so we didn't have to settle anything afterwards at all. Uh, And uh, as I was floating around a few tables, I came to two tables right next to each other. And I realized that they were particularly enjoying themselves because the wine was gone. They had finished all the wine. And uh, and so uh, I, it wasn't your table, Phil, no, no, no. No, um, uh, the wine was gone and uh, they'd been enjoying themselves. And so I thought I'll, I'll do a really kind thing. And I, uh, I waved at the head waiter and I sort of hollered him over and I said to him, hi, I'm Adam. I'm the groom. As if that wasn't obvious. Like I was the guy who sat at the, t- well, meant to be sat at the table at the front, just done a speech and all that. Anyway, and I, I said to him, I'm paying the bill. So um, uh, can we have some more wine for these tables? And he said, Yes, that's fine. He said, are you sure? Which wine do you want? And I said, oh, just the same as we had before. So, so he, sure enough, he went and he brought the tab- uh, the, those two tables more wine and they were obviously very happy and they enjoyed themselves some more. Um, and then the next day, uh, myself and Heather, we had to go and collect the rest of the cake and um, some decorations and whatnot. And we turn up, we arrive at this reception venue uh, the day after, and the manager walks up to us and says, Ah, Mr. Longley, are you here to settle your tab? And then, the look I got. (laughs) My dear new wife turned to me and through gritted teeth said, What? tab. And I'll be honest, she didn't really need to say anything because the eyes, she gets, she's got her mother's eyes, you see, my mother-in-law's eyes, and, and she's got a look. And if you get that look, you know you're in trouble. I was in trouble. And so I very sheepishly explained the situation. And uh, I must have told her I loved her about a thousand times in that sen- those few sentences too. Uh, and I was just the whole time thinking, oh no, oh no, what else has gone on that tab? What's the uh, number at the bottom of the receipt going to look like? Thankfully, it wasn't so bad. Now, that is a story about how I provided more wine at a wedding. And it didn't go down very well. Jesus, however, did it so much better. One of the greatest examples of some kindness in the Bible is in the story of Jesus turning water into wine. I'm going to read it for us right now. It's... uh, in John's Gospel, it is when I find it. It's so much easier with that face, Mike, I tell you. There we go. So it's John's Gospel. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It says this On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. 
Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw, out, uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. See, not that it was ever in doubt, but Jesus did it way better than me. Jesus won Adam nil, clearly. Firstly, I absolutely love the fact that Jesus performed a miracle with wine, mainly because he is talking my language. I enjoy a nice Cabernet Sauvignon, I like a Cote de Rhone, but I'm sure that Chateau Galilee would have totally eclipsed them all. So I would have very much enjoyed being at this wedding banquet. I do like a good party as well, um, but my wife will attest to this. If you've seen my dance skills or lack of dance skills, you'll understand why I tend to shy away from the dance floor. In fact, our wedding dance, we had a celebration in America and I I actually elbowed her in the head um, and it wasn't during a turn. Um, uh, It's it's really embarrassing uh, and they got it on video. Um, It says that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee uh, was one of the first signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him which to me is a bit of an odd one because this is a strange way to reveal your glory as the son of God. Why did he not kick off with healing a paralyzed man? Why did he not restore the sight of someone who was blind? Why on earth did he not feed the 5,000? Why did he not do that? He could have really wowed a lot of people straight away and nailed his title as the son of God so much so that it was beyond human dispute. But bizarrely, he chooses to turn water into wine. And then didn't really make much of a fuss of it. The fact that the disciples believed in him uh, through this act, through this sign, through the changing of water into wine, suggests perhaps that either disciples like me enjoy a nice glass of wine, or perhaps they understood the message behind the changing of the water into wine. In all honesty, though, my vote is probably for the former, because if we're honest, we are we're quite aware that the disciples tended to sort of lose sight of the point. They tended to miss the point entirely quite often, but that's another story. Jesus, when he turned water into wine, uh, he did it purely because he cared about the man. It would have been a really embarrassing situation if the man had uh, completely run out of wine at this event if he hadn't found a solution or a solution hadn't been found for him. It was the role of the host to provide all that would be required for the party. Uh, All that would have been required for the party to party. 
and the running out of wine would have been a major no-no. Serious questions would have been asked about him if he had run out of something as crucial to this party as wine. Jesus saw the situation, he knew how awkward it would have been, and he just did a very genuine, lovely, kind thing. He understood how important the celebration was, uh, and he understood the predicament that this man was in, and, and how he, things would have played out if he had not stepped in. There was no ulterior motive. Jesus did not attach any strings to his assistance. He simply did it because he wanted to show kindness. Showing kindness raises a question, though. How can we be kind to those around us? Not necessarily what can we do that might be kind, but more so how can we be kind and show kindness to everybody around us? Now, there are probably some people who frustrate you. There are people who frustrate me. We still have to be kind. We still have to be kind. Jesus calls us to love our neighbour, and Corinthians clearly says that love is kind, so we are to be kind to others. The complication is that you cannot be kind and become kinder simply by working harder, trying to be a kind person. It does not work like that. In all honesty, the only way that we can become kinder and more loving is by inviting Jesus into our life. Inviting him in so that we might become more like him. And instead of us then performing forced acts of kindness through gritted teeth in some circumstances, we develop a Jesus-like approach to everybody. There would have been people who Jesus met during his time on earth who treated him really badly, who did not deserve the kindness he showed them but they are still entitled to his kindness because he is God and God loves all. When we know Jesus, when we begin to understand our identity in Jesus, our identity as sons and daughters of God, as adopted heirs of God, and when we uh, discover who we are in Jesus, our Jesus-filled identity becomes the driving force behind our actions and indeed our motives. The risk is, if we don't know our identity in Jesus, if we don't know who we are in Jesus, we find our identity in other stuff and in the stuff that we do. We find our worth in others And when we do that, we end up being manipulated by our surroundings and circumstances. When we find our worth in other places, aside from our identity in Jesus, we end up living a reactive life. People, places, situations and circumstances change. If you find your identity and worth uh, are wrapped up in there somewhere and something happens to alter people, place, situation, circumstance, you can find your identity or worth and or worth on a roller coaster, up and down, all over the place. We end up doing things and saying things that might look kind, that might feel like the right thing to do, but end up, we end up doing them more for our own benefit, because we figure out that it might benefit ourselves. 
In some instances, we can even act in a harmful way towards others rather than a loving way. When you know Jesus, when you truly know Jesus and you find your identity in him, when you find your, uh, your worth in him, you find it in someone who is stable, who is solid. Jesus is as solid as a rock. Nobody can ever say that Jesus has let them down because it is not in his nature to let people down. He is the perfect example of a friend, the one who is always there for you and doesn't bring any of the negativity that some friendships, most friendships do, at least in part. He is a rock. He is your rock. And when you embrace that relationship and allow it to influence your life, it leads you on a path of discovery that will establish grace, truth and justice as your motivators. And those three things are all products of love. Jesus came and declared truth and called out the liars. He fought for justice and battled against in the injustices of this world. And he showed a relentless grace to humanity. And when grace, truth and justice are your motivators, you begin to act kindly. And I mean genuinely kindly without any regard for personal benefit. You begin to see the situations around you and the circumstances of others through Jesus's eyes and not through world tinted eyes. You start reacting to situations as prompted by God's spirit and not personal preference. Now, that's all well and good, Adam. I hear you say, but I always try and act kindly, and so often I am taken advantage of. I'm sure we have all got experiences of that. I get it. Here it is, folks. This is a call to action. Being kind does not make you a pushover. You are not a pushover. Being kind does not mean that you don't have boundaries. It means that you are free to act without considering what's in it for you. At my previous workplace, I found uh, that I was treated extremely differently when people found out that I was a Christian. They would try their luck pushing the boundaries. They would, um, uh, yeah, they would really try and stretch me because they didn't think that there'd be any consequences for their actions because all Christians are nice, because all Christians are pushovers. Isn't that right? No, it's not right. In fact, I discovered an inner sense of morality that far exceeded anything that I'd previously known, that I'd known before I began a relationship with Jesus. I had a deep and intense desire to pursue justice for those who were victims of office politics and backstabbing. I felt a deep burden to build up those who were broken and call out and to call out the unjust behaviors of those who created the oppressive atmosphere in the office. An active relationship with Jesus awakens and develops a sensitivity that drives you to seek truth and justice, to act reasonably and in kindness, and to exhibit love in all interactions. It does not mean you're a pushover. Quite the opposite. I did discover, though, that there is a cost to being kind. The cost varies, but always requires action. It requires something for you. You have to do 
1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That means we have to act. That means that we have to stand up. We have to speak out. We have to, we have to do. We have to do. We have to be an active people. And our relationship with Jesus should prompt us to be an active people. To be kind and to fight for truth and justice in any given situation, you have to take action. You have to be willing to stand up for what is right and do so because it is the right thing to do. It is the kind thing to do, the loving thing to do.